Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids, a podcast that steps into alternative education, parenting, and living a funner, fuller family life. I'm Robin, home educator, unschooling mom to two funny, eclectic kids, and we're here to create a space for families to listen, connect, learn from others, and be inspired. Join us every two weeks to hear interviews and tips from experts in learning, education, and parenting, and stories from families that are playing full out in the arena of life and education. World schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, homeschooling, or just creating a whole new style of learning. Hello, people. Welcome back to the Honeymoon Homeschooling the Kids podcast. And I think in this introduction, we're going to do a read the review because it's the last time I was on. We didn't do a read the review. Anyways, we are going to do a read review. And this review is from Ski Bunny. And it's called Getting Educated About Education. And she says, My absolute favorite podcast on education outside the walls of a traditional classroom. Our family is in our fifth year of homeschooling and third year of world schooling. And I love listening to many different ways of preparing our children for life. I always walk away enlightened, supported, and inspired. Thank you, Robin, and all your fantastic guests. Thank you, Ski Bunny, for that very nice review. So in this podcast, my mom is interviewing... Teru Claval. And I think she really enjoyed this interview. Yeah, I think she has a few words to say too right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I really did. Thank you, Teru, for coming on. It was a fantastic interview. We actually have a lot in common. One of the things is uh, raising our kids in Asia as well. And she's a mom of three. She moved her family to Asia to embark on a 10-year journey through schools in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Tokyo, and then in California. They are based in New York now. But this journey and her, and her work in education consulting and writing shined a light on learning and education in the context of country and culture. And we, you know, we really tried to, to discuss is one way better than another. But we talked about raising global kids, uh, the word independence and what it means for kids in a place like Japan versus North America. One of the comments she made that stuck out to me was, you know, we have a hard time letting our kids struggle in North America. And uh, so listen in as we talk more about that. We also discussed mastery and learning and how education is defined in different countries. And we talked about her new book, which is called World Class, One Mother's Journey Halfway Around the Globe in Search of the Best Education for Her Children. I'm awaiting that book to arrive at my house. It should be here anytime, but it is out now. It's already out. So please um, go to Amazon or your local bookstore to get it. Thank you for listening to the episode and make sure to follow my mom on Instagram and Facebook and go to her website and check that out. And yeah, thank you for listening to the episode. Have a good day. So today I have Teru Clavel on the show. Teru, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited. I'm so excited to be speaking with you, Robin. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. I have True Clavel is a super global mom. She is an education expert, columnist, and sought-after public speaker. Since 2010, she has run her own education consulting practice, advising globally-minded families on a range of issues that include multiple language acquisition, school choice, and how to enroll their children in U.S. universities. True has written columns on education for both the Japan Times and the Financial Times, and she's made appearances on CBS This Morning, CNBC's Squawk Box, and Channel News Asia. True spent a decade raising her family in Asia and has a BA in Asian Studies and an MS in Comparative International Education. 
She recently returned to live in New York with her family. And I understand you're going to be on the Today Show coming up here uh, as well. I am. I'm really excited about that. That's going to be on Wednesday, the 21st of August. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So we can tune in to hear that as well. Thank you. All right. (laughs) So you are an international mom. I think that's probably a a great way to uh, maybe one of the words that we can use to describe you. Would you agree? (laughs) Yeah, I actually would. I would uh, take that with great pride and honor. Thank you. (laughs) No problem. And here on the show, usually I have my guests that join me always, I I like to showcase unique learning journeys. And I know learning journeys are usually based on a framework of beliefs and values around learning and self-expression and living. And the majority of my families on the show have created their own unique learning journeys, and especially for education, alternative education approaches. So you and your family have spent over 10 years living in three separate countries in the U.S., China, and Japan. And you have three children, is that right? That's right. So when my oldest at the time was just two years old, we were living in New York City and we were given the opportunity to move to Hong Kong. So at that point, I had a two-year-old and an eight-month-old and we left it, left at that opportunity. And we were there for four years from 2006 until 10. And while we were in Hong Kong, my third child was born. So when we had three children in 2010, We had the opportunity to move to Shanghai, and we were there for two years until 2012. And then we moved to Tokyo, uh, again, with three children from 2012 to 16, and then came back to the United States in 2016, and we're in Palo Alto, California for two years and just relocated back home, kind of coming full circle to New York City last uh, summer. And through our journey, we enrolled the children in the local public schools where we lived. Okay, okay. So can I ask first, are you, what is your background? Have you always, are you born and raised in the United States? So I think that's a really important piece of information because I grew up, I'm half Japanese, uh, half American, and I grew up mostly in the Connecticut, New York City area. And my home language, language was Japanese. So Going to Asia didn't seem like it was that much of a foreign concept to me. And as you'd mentioned, I was an Asian studies major undergraduate. So growing up as well, because my mother was Japanese, uh, most of my family did live in Japan. And I spent my summers and many of my vacations in in Japan. And during elementary school, I actually attended the local schools of, of Tokyo. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. So that very much informed who I am, but also how I parent and educate my children. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And um, so you spoke Japanese at home. So you're, you're fluent, you're bilingual in both Japanese and English from a young age. I am, but I should say with a caveat that Japanese is so full of honorifics that my spoken Japanese is is very is much more casual. So when we did move to Japan in 2012, I struggled with that a bit. Definitely uh, had my fair share of tutoring <laughs> to, to lift up the level because at that point I'd also started doing some education work there and needed to to beef up that that higher level of speaking. Right. Okay. I understand. Okay. Yeah. And so when you decided to move to Asia, so you went to Hong Kong first. Were you excited? Was this? Um, did it take some decision making, or was it something that maybe you had always becoming a parent, you had always wanted to share your own? experiences that you had growing up with your children? 
to be honest, it was really hard for me to figure out how, because my children are a quarter Japanese, how I was going to share my culture with them because Japanese is not a, a, a commonly spoken language in the United States. And I wasn't sure how, how or if I would even teach the language to them. To be frank, I think at that point, I was more interested in, in okay, if we go to Asia, how do I teach them Mandarin? And do we even go to Asia? And I, it was a very confusing time for me when I had, when I had my children. So it wasn't something that I really had thought about. But when the opportunity came up, it was, I, I probably didn't even bat an eyelash. I said, of course, we're going. <laughs> and that was a really naive response, I have to admit, because I didn't really take into account how completely different the culture and language of Hong Kong is from my exposure to Japan growing up. I mean, just because I'm going to the same continent, you know, neighboring countries doesn't mean they have more similarities than, you know, I would say the U.S. Um, in Hong Kong or Tokyo or or any other country. So there was a big, big, big culture shock for me. Um, I will be the first to admit that. And being an expatriate, and this was my first sojourn overseas as a, as a parent, I just listened to what the other expatriate parents are doing. Oh, you put your kid into an international school. So I put my two-year-old into a international preschool, didn't think of it. It was a, it was a half Mandarin, half English program. And then only about halfway through the first year did I realize, wait a minute, my child isn't really learning any Mandarin here because the other kids are all speaking English. Right. And in the three hour a day program, he's only getting an hour and a half of Mandarin exposure a day. So that's when my thinking really started changing. And I had to reevaluate my educational decisions that really informed the educational decisions from that point forward for all three of my children. Okay. Can I ask, because I know um, Hong Kong is traditionally Cantonese speaking in the international schools, is that's what Mandarin is, English and Mandarin are the primary, Cantonese is not introduced, or how does that work right now? So from my understanding, um, it is it is English actually is a medium of instruction and Cantonese is more the, the vernacular. Okay. Uh, and at the time when we were there and looking at schools, Mandarin immersion programs were very rare. They were kind of the outlier. And so when we looked into schooling options at that point for my preschooler, there were only, I want to say, two public kind of pre-Ks where they had full Mandarin immersion. And we ended up enrolling uh, two of my children in that. It was uh, called, nicknamed Suja. And one of my expatriate friends, she said, are you crazy? That's the prison, you know, because it's a very, very bare bones place. But as Mandarin started becoming more and more popular as a second or third language to learn, the student enrollment uh, went up and it became a very, very difficult place to get a spot for your child. And so we kind of went 180. And from this more cushy, international, private preschool went to this really bare bones, institutional feel, concrete cinder block school called the prison where I, where I took my, <laughs> my, my three-year-old um, and thereafter, shortly thereafter, my two-year-old. And uh, I have to say, it really shifted the way I thought about school because I was educated primarily in the United States as well. And I, I wasn't used to kind of such an austere environment. Right. And, yeah. and so 
And how was it for your children as well? It would be a huge shift for you as a parent. And how was it for your children? Because that's something I want to ask after this too is, I think that, and I know when I sent you some of the questions, there is a big belief or stereotype, I think, when we compare Asian education and North American education. And I think Asian, there's the idea of hardcore drilling and memorization and rote. Was that the case for for this school, this particular school, or was your experience quite different from that? I think it's a mixture. I think the first part of the question in terms of whether or not my children adjusted, I think they didn't have really any context for comparison and they were so young and their friends were there and they were having fun. So to them, it's just normal. And they had daily homework starting at age three. And the homework was very simple. It was, you had three different kinds of journals and, or I should say notebooks. And one was the ABC uh, alphabet and the other was numbers. And the other was uh, Chinese characters that they started writing. And they would just have to copy, I don't know, a character maybe eight times or so every day. And it was more just the discipline of of learning to take responsibility for your own studies at home mm-hmm. more than it was you have to learn this material. And something that I that I do struggle with myself because I do get asked this question a lot about the rote versus the creative or the innovative kind of learning is this whole idea of getting your foundational understanding right first. And while I, I I feel, why don't I put it this way? There's this concept of mastery that I think is really interesting that the OECD has. It's a mastery framework and it's getting your basics right. So it's knowing your arithmetic tables and knowing your phonics, knowing your reading, getting your grammar, your spelling. But then Mastery means how do you apply it to real life situations? Right. So instead of kind of having the conversation where it's kind of this bifurcated rote versus creative way of learning, I like to think of it more as getting your foundational knowledge and content knowledge right, and then being more creative in terms of the mastery and how you apply it to your everyday living. And I think I really gained an appreciation for that watching my kids be educated uh, more, I would say, in Shanghai and in Japan as my kids were older and were entering elementary school, where I actually saw kind of the application of that content. But I also want to say something something that I think Malcolm Gladwell actually uh, addressed this in, in one of his books is, you know, you have the the numeric system is very simple, you know, one through 10, and then 11 is 10, one, 10, and then 12 is 10, two which makes kind of mathematical calculations a little easier. However, you know, to be literate in Chinese or in Japanese, you have to memorize thousands of characters. Cheers, right. And there's just no way around that. You know, it's kind of like memorizing your ABCs. And to be able to be uh, literate in terms of being able to read a newspaper in Japan you have to complete a middle school education. So you can't even understand or read a newspaper until you're 15 years old in Japan. Right. And Japan has one of the highest literacy rates in the world. They're, they're almost at 100%. So when you think about that, it's I have a lot of respect you know, for that because to be able to have an entire nation come up to such high learning expectations and to have such literacy levels is, is pretty phenomenal. And, and you have to imagine the discipline it took 
for all those students, for all the the population, right? 99% of the population to be literate, what it took. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I have a question as well. Absolutely. Do you you find that, um, so I I agree. I agree. I agree with the mastery that it's not, you have your foundation, but it's in the application. Cause I think that's really when you understand it. I think I'm trying to remember where I read it as well, where, you know, you're, your full understanding comes when able, when you're able to teach something to somebody else. You know it enough and understand it enough that then you can apply it and teach it to others. Yeah. How how did this happen? Like you see, you you saw that more when your kids were in Shanghai and Japan. How did this application happen, or was this something that you did more as a parent independently? Oh, that's such a great question because the first <laughs> I have to laugh. I have to say. The first time I think I saw it in action, and this may be a bad parenting moment that I'm admitting here. I'm not quite sure, <laughs> but when we That's first okay. moved we to Shanghai, oh gosh, I think it's the way we stay human by sharing, right? And <laughs> absolutely. Um, and when I don't speak Mandarin, you know, I remember oh, it was such a struggle for me. The sounds, it was just, it was really, despite my being bilingual in Japanese and English, really languages are not my strong suit. <laughs> And I struggled with the Mandarin when we first got to Shanghai. But meanwhile, my son, because he had been in Mandarin programs in Hong Kong for, at that point, four years, he could speak fluent Mandarin. And in 2010, everything that you shopped for in Shanghai was a negotiation. Right. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, you know, you couldn't go to the grocery store, I felt like, unless it was a Western grocery store without negotiating what you're, what you're paying for, you know, like a, like a piece of lettuce, a head of lettuce. Yeah. So I've lived in Shanghai myself before as well. Right. I understand. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And, and granted, there was definitely a lot of negotiation in Hong Kong. It, It took on a different level in Shanghai, but I can't speak Mandarin. So we moved to Shanghai and I take my son to this electronic store called Gomei. Mm-hmm. Which is probably like a Best Buy, right? And even there, even though there are you know shelves and and so many rows and rows of electronics equipment and and home appliances, because we don't have anything, we need everything from an iron to a modem to a vacuum cleaner, toaster oven, anything, everything. And I can't communicate. I can't even figure out does this toast or does this broil or, you know, and I'm trying to look at the phones and I'm trying to figure out, does this only come with one wireless or two? And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I can't, I I'm, I'm just, I'm completely, completely helpless. I'm there with my son who is at that point, six and a half years old who speaks Mandarin and he is on fire. He's negotiating with me. He's telling me the percentage is off. He's telling me, you know, how, you know, how hot the iron gets. And I'm going, is this, is this really happening? Like, I don't know if this is, and I thought, this is pretty cool. You know, and I thought, okay, he's, he's, he's gotten something here. So as much as that may have been kind of, um, unheard of. I think it, it was probably a good a good lesson for both of us, empowering him and, and me being pretty wowed by my own child. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And I, I think another thing that is um, unique, I would think, because I've lived in Asia, like I've lived mm-hmm. in China, um, in Shanghai, and outside Wuxi is the other place oh, yes. I lived, and uh, Changzhou. And then I've also lived in Korea, 
so same. It's Asia, but completely different. Very different. Yes. The language is different. Korea, it's all Hangul is all phonetic. It's not mm-hmm. symbols, even though they do practice um, their Chinese characters, but mm-hmm. the language is very, very different. It's structured. It's honorific like Japanese is as well. But yeah, but I, and my kids both lived in Korea as well. My son was born there. And then we moved back again once my daughter was four and we lived there for another year in Seoul. And one of the things that stands out for me in Korea, especially, but it was the same as well in China is that, I mean, the kids do, compared to North America, the kids go to school a lot. Like some moms would say, my child's job is to, I remember I had some friends and we had a discussion about chores, for example, in the house. Mm -hmm. And they had said, you know, I don't want my child to do chores in the home because their job is to be a student, is to study. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in Korea, they, you know, it's a long school day because they have their regular school and then the private lessons on top of that, private math school, English school, um, Mm -hmm. Taekwondo or piano or whatever, they have a whole list. But the thing was, is that the kids, even from a very young age, they go to all of these places by themselves. Here in North America, you see where parents, you know, pick them up from the door of the school. They almost walk them to the classroom, even at an older age. Um, Even some kids, I know some teenagers in the city uh, at the school I worked at one time, I, you know, I said, oh, you're 16, you're going to get a driver's license. You excited? (laughs) And they, the one comment, I was shocked because they were, because I remember being 16 the day I turned 16, I got my, I like my license. They said, no, I don't, I don't really need my license. And I thought, what? Because I thought it's independent, it's freedom. And and the comment was, my mom will just still drive me everywhere. So there's no need for me to get <laughs> it. But in, you know, in Korea and China, you know, the kids, these little tiny kids were like taking the bus. They, you know, they know where to get off. It's a busy city in every place, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And here, there is no way parents would let them out of their sight. So it creates a lot of a different learning experience for them in that way. Did you find that? Did your kids experience that as well? Or because I'm thinking about the applications as well in, you know, everyday life too. I think that's so important because in Japan at age six, the kids are on their own and it's almost looked down upon if you are kind of, I'll use a Western term here, but kind of helicoptering your parents. Uh, hel- I'm sorry, as a parent, helicoptering your kids right. in, in watching where they're going and taking them everywhere and picking them up. It's kind of like, wait, you didn't teach them how to be independent or you're, you're not letting them learn, which is another whole concept. And so my kids definitely, by the time they were six in Japan, were going to and from school on their own, going to their after school activities on their own. And I have to say recently, my son, my middle son, who's now 13 years old, said to me that, that, and now we've been back in the US for three years, he said that was one of the greatest experiences because he said, when you don't have parents looking over you all the time, he said, you not only learn from the mistakes you make, but your friendships get so much deeper. Okay. I didn't and I thought, that. yeah, I'd, I'd never thought of that before. And I thought, wow. So that's a lot of kind of emotional growth and insight that he has uh, that, you know, I have, I have nothing to do with, um, which I was very proud of. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I was happy he shared that with me. And I, and, I, and I do understand what you're saying about that, kind of the parents picking up the kids, because when we moved to Palo Alto, my youngest was going into second grade. And I was very happy that we were moving to Palo Alto because the kids seemed to be able to bike to and from school on their own. Right. 
And at that point, my middle child was in fifth grade. So my second grader and my fifth grader could bike to school together and bike back. And it was maybe a half a mile down the street, all residential. And I went to school one day and a bunch of these moms came to me and said, how are you? We never see you here. (laughs) And I thought, you know what? I thought, why is something wrong? You know, like, why would I be here? They go, but you're not a pickup and drop off. And I thought, why would I be? Right. I mean, I, I felt like I was giving my children this amazing gift of, you know, stopping and looking at a butterfly on the way home or my son in Japan, he was coming back from a soccer practice on his bicycle and he got a flat tire and he had to figure out how to do that on his own. And actually that reminds me of my daughter in Palo Alto, actually, she got a flat tire, which was actually a beautiful learning experience because she was biking home with her friend and she was 30 minutes late. And of course, as a parent, I panicked and I get in my car and I try to find her and lo and behold, she's down the street and she's standing there and her friend, this wonderful friend uh, named Ben, apparently carried her bike to as far as he could get (laughs) while she rode his bike. (laughs) And then she was just standing there because she had the flat tire. Right. You know, and I think that goes back to my son's point, which is, you know, when you don't have parents watching over you all the time, your friendships get stronger. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a great example. So do you find now that you're back in the U.S. that maybe you have, um, I don't know, helicoptering has rubbed off a little bit on you? Or are you still, you know, pretty open to giving your children their independence? I've been asked that question a lot and understandably so coming back to the America that I came back to in 2016 and today. But I kind of feel like we as parents can, there's only so much we can control. Mm and what we can focus our energies on. And I feel like we were very fortunate to have had the experiences we had. And, you know, I learned to parent in Asia and my kids learned to be students in Asia. So we pretty much carry the same expectations and norms within our household, I should say. So one example is in Shanghai, my son in his particular classroom, a passing grade in math class was considered a 95% and they had regular arithmetic drills. And if they didn't understand something, they were kept after school to be taught until they mastered the content. And that's kind of held in our family. It's kind of like we have really high expectations because math is cumulative. And, you know, if you don't know something from last unit, then it's hard to know this unit. If you don't have your arithmetic, then algebra is going to be hard. You can't do calculus if you don't have your algebra. So we kind of hold that 90 90 to 95% as a standard in our family. And though it might seem, I don't want to equate myself to a tiger mom, (laughs) but kind of tiger mom, like it's, it was just the norm. It's what we got used to. Right. Um, and if if my kids need help, we are always there to say, okay, who in our community can help us and to start uh, exploring the community of tutors or teachers or li- library uh, support networks or college students, anything that we can find to help help my kids. Right. Okay. Okay. So speaking of that, um, and I'm just going to make sure I write down one part of the question so I don't forget it, but the first part is... Um, mm-hmm. 
so the styles, the learning styles, that's very different than North America. I mean, I think some some schools, maybe charter schools, or I mean, I'm in Canada, um, so maybe there's some mm-hmm. schools, private schools or charter schools that might have a specific focus toward more intense academic learning. Um, but mm-hmm. still, I don't think to that aspect as well. They give the example of math, that they have to have a passing grade as 95, 90, 95. And if they don't understand it, they stay after school and with the teacher until they do. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's a huge difference, I think, between with, with schooling in North America. It's more, more rigor in, in many ways. What, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Are there, what, are the th- what are your thoughts on the benefits and costs of these two opposing learning styles? I, you know, I think in the U.S. it is now going towards more about the whole child, whole child-centered and um, building that from that aspect that if you don't have your... Uh, personal awareness, your health, those other foundations that the academics don't really matter as much, even your personal relationships within your family structure as well. What do you think about that? I think the balance is so key. I think if you don't have those interpersonal skills, especially when technology is becoming more pervasive, then what are we as a human human race? So I do think that that emphasis is, is vital but at the same time, I do think that rigor is is important as well. I I kind of feel like we've gotten, and I don't want to make blanket statements because in North America, we are so diverse and so decentralized and every classroom is so different from every other classroom. But I feel like we're getting so pulled into the whole child concept that we may be losing our academics. And while Shanghai can definitely be criticized for being too rote, uh, the Ministry of Education there, you know, is very focused on, and the educators that I spoke with there doing research for for my book, World Class, are very focused on beefing up their arts and uh, music and PE. Okay. Very, very focused on that. And I think if I were to look at a model that is so well balanced, and I am more of a East Asian education uh, expert than I am. I don't know as much about Europe. But when you look at the model of Japan, studies have shown that that whole child curriculum is baked in. So when you have a story, and I talk about this too, or I write about this in world class, a story in the language arts textbook, it'll incorporate so much about uh, friendships and while you're still learning about grammar and you're learning the characters and you're learning about um, interpersonal communication. And it's, it's a fascinating model because it really, it, it is so holistic, I think is the best way to put it. And I will also say that they haven't reduced their rigor because if you look at 15 year olds, according to the OECDP's exam, which people can you know, agree with or disagree with the results of this exam that's giving internationally to 15-year-olds. These East Asian countries come, in math at least, two to three years ahead of America, or I should say the United States. And when you look at that, you know, what we're basically saying is that we are we are not as rigorous in the United States. And we have 18-year-olds who are graduating from high school at the same level as Japanese and Shanghainese 15-year-olds. Right. And we are also dealing right now with a situation where we need, well, I I don't want to say need, but we are struggling with getting 
are, I guess, math majors and STEM majors who are not international students to major in these fields in university. And you often hear, and this is something that I heard that I didn't hear when I was overseas. What we often hear in this country is, well, I'm just not good at math. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just get, and I thought, what? what? Where did this come from? How can you not be good at math? You just study it and you learn it and you master it and you move on. Whereas I heard that so regularly amongst even elementary school children. And then when I heard my daughter say it in second grade, <laughs> I thought, wow, where, I mean, what happened? Where, where did this right. come from? Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's about this whole mindset. Um, you know, there's been a lot of research out of Stanford with Carol Dweck and, and, and Jim Stigler did. Yeah. Joe Bowler. Absolutely. And it's, it's just, I, I think, I mean, th this gets into a, a far deeper co uh, conversation too, about letting your kids with Joe Bowler's research as well, letting your kids kind of struggle to gain mastery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that whole concept of helicoptering as well. And we're at a very interesting inflection point, I feel like, in the United States where it's it's hard somehow to let our kids struggle. Yeah. And I mean, I heard recently someone say to me, you know, the twelfth, the twelfth place trophy. I said, What? <laughs> I was like, Oh, because if you're coming twelfth, you get a trophy. And I was like, Oh, yeah, okay. And the fact that I even understood that was kind of, huh. Cause when I was growing up, you know, I don't think third place got a trophy. Right. <laughs> you maybe got a ribbon, you know. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it is um, it is such an interesting conversation. I agree, especially when we take the example of math. Um, and I mean, you can agree or disagree with me. That's totally fine. I think I think, um, you know, I think that's part of the healthy conversation as well. And I see the difference as well living in Asia. And I you hit the nail on the head where here it is a common thing to say you're a math person and I'm not a math person. You know, I'm an English person. I'm, I'm good at language arts or but I'm just not good at math. And it's not just the kids that say that it's the parents that say it as well. Oh, I was never good at math. You know, you, you probably aren't because I wasn't good at math either. Well, it's true. In in uh, Korea, I never heard someone talk about math in that way. Math was just something that everybody did and everybody can do. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it creates a very different framework when there is the I guess in a way, expectation, cultural expectation, that math is just part of everyday life more so than I feel that we have here. And I and I don't know, you know, you can let me know how it is in Japan, but I remember in Korea, kids do extra math school, but a lot of it is, sure, you have at some point the um, memorization, but actually a lot of the private math schooling, like the extra math school, is using a lot of hands-on learning as well, manipulatives yeah. and breaking down the yeah. math into different ways um, and different approaches. Then it's not necessarily just doing a worksheet and trying to say the answer. And I think that it's a misconception that many people here have, that math in Asia is just all about that wrote and regurgitation and that there's worksheet after worksheet when it's actually not. There's a lot of practical application. And so for the introdu the introduction of math is very, very different, I find. And then there's the, there's the other layer to it when you bring in culture and language. And I think in some ways, especially like uh, in Mandarin, the way that it's uh, you talk about math and quantities and counting, the structure of it is very different than in the English language. Um, and I don't know if that makes a difference as well. 
Have you have you noticed? I don't know how it is in Japanese, but I think of even in when I was in Shanghai, when you count, when you're going to the market to negotiate, and the way they're counting, mm-hmm. you know, we just have we just hold up our fingers one, two, three, four, five. You can count. There's different signs for counting that you can do all oh, in yes. one hand, so you don't have to use your other hand. It's really fast in that way too. Um, but I think that brings different complexities into it as well. I'll stop talking and let you talk I, I, now. <laughs> No, I love that. I forgot about that. My kids would do that all the time. <laughs> when they were negotiating, they just sit at the table and do that. And I thought it was, I got such a kick out of it. Uh, I think you bring up some really, really interesting points because I think within the Western framework, we do think about math and and I've done I, I I've done so many classroom observations and I and I went across the country when I did the United States, that is, when I did research for my book World Class. And kids do worksheets in US classrooms often in math. And I'm reminded of a time when at my son's, my second son's preschool in Shanghai, they had this room that I really affectionately called the brain room. Brain room? And they had their brain room. It was this green room that used to play classical music in there. And the kids would have their little desks and they'd all have these manipulatives and they would have these charts and they would have these puzzles and, and these, uh, I don't even know how to, they're manipulatives, right? So there, some were squares, some were circles, some were, and they had to figure out how they all went together and they had magnifying glasses and, and everybody was on their own track. And when you finished your exercise, you then had to raise your hand and the teacher would approve it. And then you put it all away neatly. And then you go to your next, next drawer and you keep moving down and down and down. And there were probably 30 to 35 students in that room, five-year-olds, and aside from the classical music, you could hear pin drop. The focus was so intense. And, you know, and it was, it was a beautiful thing. <laughs> I thought, I mean, I wonder what my Western counterparts would say, you know, looking at this, but I thought, wow, this is, this is, this is amazing because the kids want to yeah. do it. And I had to say something else that you, that you had mentioned. I, it was interesting because again, when I toured the United States last year, I had conversations with a lot of school leaders and at a blue ribbon award-winning school, which the uh, Department of Education in the U.S. awards a, a bunch of top achieving schools in, in the country. I visited a school and I was very surprised when the principal said to me, well, I don't understand all these very educated tech types who want us to really push the math and science so early because research has shown that the kids just can't learn it this early. And I almost <laughs> fell over, and I and I wanted I wanted to say, well, show right. me the research, but you know, I, I was I was very <laughs> thankful to have even been a guest in her school. But then she continued, and she said, because look at our classrooms, there are words everywhere, they're not they're not a lot of numbers, mm. and I really wanted to tell her, well, then it's incumbent upon you to get those numbers right. in the classroom. So thereafter, I started doing classroom observations and really looking at how many numbers or number lines or, you know, how much are we actually using numbers versus sometimes you can go into an elementary classroom and a lower elementary classroom, and there will be four alphabets mm-hmm. on the wall, but there's not even a single number yeah. line, which was, which was really a learning experience yeah. for me. It creates a very different, um, well, so much, I think, uh, I mean, some people agree or not that it, a lot of it is in your environment and learning and even your just actual classroom space and how it's created in the context that you create within it. And I mean, we put, I think, a lot of focus on language and not necessarily on on math. And I, I wouldn't even say math like arithmetic and basic numbers, but the 
you know, the lifelong concept that math is about patterning and that actually is found throughout so many aspects of our life and so many really everyday practical aspects in nature in, you know, that's really what math is based on. But for some reason, we have this, um, you know, Einstein, it's only for Einstein kind of thing mm. that it gives a separation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and speaking with that, I, I, <laughs> I'm like, we could probably talk about that particular thing for a long time. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you know, and you'd mentioned your book as well. You have your book, World Class, One Mother's Journey Halfway Around the Globe in Search of the Best Education for Her Children. And writing that book, you did a lot of research. And I mean, you, it's personal memoir using your own experiences, but also going into other schools and classrooms as well. Do you see a shift in when you see the classrooms, when you visited them in the United States compared to Asia? Is there a change happening? Is there a shift happening? Or is it still very, very separate? So one of the most interesting pieces of research I did while I was getting my master's in comparative and international education was when I pulled apart the curriculum and the policies of my son's school when he was in Shanghai, his elementary school. And when I did the translation work, I was gobsmacked because it was literally pulled directly from one of the most recent pieces of research coming out of the Harvard School Graduate School of Education. And and what was that? <laughs> I think and it was it was something about it was something more about kind of whole child learning actually. And what I what I thought was so interesting was we have in the United States some of the most robust education research in the world. And every year I go to the AERA annual conference and it's the American Education Research Association conference. And it seems like everybody has their eye on the US. What is the latest educational reform, the curricular innovation? What are we talking about? There's so many things, social, emotional learning, mindfulness, personalized learning, technology. And English is the most you know, spoken language in the world. And in most countries, speaking English is is kind of the gateway to your economic success and future, right? As we've seen in Korea and, and, in, and in China. So with the eyes on the United States, I feel like these East Asian countries are really looking at what works and what doesn't work and what the, you know, schools of education are 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 publishing. So I mentioned earlier that Shanghai is really, really focused on, or I should say China, and then the Ministry of Education is focused on PE and arts and music and enriching their curricula. And I can't say that's pervasive across the board, but I will say that when I go to the AERA conference, there are attendees from all over the world who are looking to figure out what the latest curricular innovations are. Can can I just ask you, do you do yeah. you think yes. that they are looking more towards the arts because they're missing something? They What do they see that might be lacking that they need to um, fill or supplement? Or just they just see things changing and therefore they want education to change as well? It's such a good question. I, I don't know if I have the exact answer, but I will say when we look at the international student flows, the majority of the students from China and India, for example, are coming to study STEM areas, both undergrad and graduate. So there is this kind of fascination with U.S. higher education. 
And what so what are they doing? And what it, what is a liberal arts education? Because right now we do know that our university humanities departments are suffering um, with with lower enrollment compared to STEM. But I think there is this idea also of, you know, we are unfortunately or fortunately quite attached to our smartphones and our apps. And when we look at Silicon Valley and what we see with all these tech companies, what they're doing and the innovation, the creativity, and, you know, how can we get some of that? I think I hear that struggle from a lot of educators in East Asia. How can we get more entrepreneurial ideas grounded in our home countries? Um, so I think, I, I think there's a, a combination of a lot of things going on. And I mean, the United States has everything, you know, we have some of the most amazing innovations and educational institutions, and we do have at the other end, we have equity problems. So I, I think if you're looking for just like a, like a, I don't, I want to even say like a curriculum for how to improve your own school system. The U.S. has it, right? Because we, we do have everything. I kind of think of the U.S. as this, as this big experiment and everybody in the world can come and pick and choose what they think works and what doesn't work within the U.S. I wasn't, I, I wish it wasn't so extreme, but um, I do feel like that's, that is yeah. what's, what's happening. And I do feel that you, the U.S. is usually held as a pinnacle. Everyone wants to go to the States to study in the top, most famous universities apart from like, say, um, you know, uh, Cambridge is, are, on, are in the United yes. States. And it's kind of ironic that everyone does want to flock there, yet the U.S. always talks about their education system is struggling or they're, you know, before university anyways. Um, so it, it, it's, yes. it's odd. It's kind of an odd uh, <laughs> juxtaposition in that, that it, they're, you know, talking about how it's failing, their education system is failing, yet everyone, and, and you know, even before university, and I think probably part of it is getting into the U.S. university, I have so many friends from China and Korea that have moved, have moved their children or just sent their children away by themselves to live in the U.S. and Canada so that they can get the education in North America. And it's, yes. you know, it's, yeah, it's really, I don't know, <laughs> I can't say it's right or wrong, but it is interesting that it's the magnet where everyone wants to go and it's still held as the pinnacle that, you know, so many, and even I had so many friends there that would say, oh, well, my kids are studying in the United States, you know, my, my child's going to high school there. And, you know, and I asked, well, where's your son? Oh, he moved away to the U.S. Or that was always a goal. I want to send my child to California or they'll be going to school in Canada. Uh, that was kind of the the status that was held. For sure. And it's, and it's, I have this theory because I worked with very high achieving uh, Shanghai students who are looking to go to U.S. universities. And a lot of them for their, for their high school, which is three years, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, if you were to use the U.S. comparable, if they decide that they're not going to take the Gaokao, which is a college entrance exam, they spend basically three years focusing on how to get into a U.S. university. And because they're already kind of at the high achieving levels, Again, because these kids are literally three years ahead in their academic standing than their U.S. counterparts, they finished high school when they're 15, like a U.S. high school basically curriculum. So they basically have three years to come to a U.S. school and master that content. And, you know, a lot of them, and I don't say this lightly, they're kind of learning Mm -hmm. machines. When I worked with them, I 
I mean, from a Western perspective, you you tell them, you know, take a break, go take a vacation, go take a walk, because they, you know, at the time when the SAT was out of uh, 2400, if they didn't get a 2350, they 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 just right. kept studying, and it, it was it, it, I, I I listen I'm like tongue tied when I would work on essays with them or when I want to talk to them about kind of what books they're reading on the side, their rate of completion and their edits and their thinking was just it was it was at a level that I had not seen either growing up personally or with their U.S. high school counterparts. It was it was it was it was. Uh, it very enlightening is probably the best way to put it. It was it was very high level stuff. And do you think that really it's thanks to just how, like how the, the structure of how they they grew up, the expectation, the structure of society within their society, and obviously parenting and education, and that's what drives it or drives them. I think yeah, and on a more granular level, I think when you have that one child policy implemented and in, in in China. Right. And you have two sets of grandparents and you have one set of parents all focused on the education of that one child. And they're willing to sacrifice anything for that education. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I think it manifests in that kid is going to succeed. Right. Um, if that, if you have so many people focused on that, on that child's education, and that's not even including the pressure and the high expectations that the child feels within the school and the school community. Right. Because that was the other question I was going to ask you. You have that that high standard, but also what about burnout? Oh, I think burnout is a, is a big problem. There's no question. And I think as we, I, I feel like in the United States, we are so good about talking about our mental well-being but it saddens me greatly to think that at most public high schools, for example, in the United States, you're lucky if there's one counselor to 400 students. Right, right. Um, and our university systems are struggling with this as well. And I think this is definitely an, an area within Japan and certainly within China that's going to have to be addressed mm-hmm. um, because it is it is an area that's behind. Yeah. Um I know, I think Japan probably has, I know Korea as well, there is an exact day where the suicide rates are the highest. And unfortunately, sadly, it's, um, you know, many young people too. And it's usually right around their national exam time, mm-hmm. after their national exam time. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure felt, absolutely, and, and in the expectation as well, absolutely. But um, yeah, all over the world. And I, I don't I don't know if there is a, right way or wrong way? Or is there a better education system compared to another? Or do we just take the best pieces out of every part and the pieces that fit best for our family? That's such a great question, because I feel like within the United States, because our schools are so varied and our households are so varied, I think it's incumbent upon every family to decide how they define an education. Mm. And how they define what an education, educated person is, you know, because for me, because I started my kids in school in Asia, it was very clear that textbooks that were mandated by the government were covered, literally cover to cover. And you knew what an education person, educated person was because they knew all the content in those textbooks. Whereas in the United States, the textbooks, the material, the technology used, the teachers, the students, it, it's so variable that 
it's really, I feel like incumbent upon the family to figure out. So, you know, are you going to go for the sports scholarship or is your math more important? Or is it okay that your teacher said that you don't have to know your multiplication tables by heart or within the family? Are we going to make the decision that that is important? Or I see here in whatever state you may be living in, you don't have to take geography. Is it important in our family that you have to learn the world map? Right. Because these are things that are all taken care of um, in, in, in many other comparable nations. So I think that is, that's a really, really important um, area to think about. And then when I think about comparative international education, although I'm absolutely fascinated with comparing by comparing education systems to different countries, I don't want to say that we don't have great models within the United States because we can easily say, and that's the the final chapter of my book. I have a chapter called "Cheers to the Great Potential" and and the successes that that are going on in the U.S. And there's some fabulous schools, and there's some fabulous educators and fabulous education researchers. And what I guess I'm trying to say is, we just have to pull apart the pull apart the variables and make those assessments within our own families. So, you know, wh- who are the who are the teachers in your child's life? And I don't just mean the formal classroom teacher or necessarily a parent, but is there even a crossing guard or is the cashier at the local convenience store where your child goes all the time an important influencer? Um, what kind of media are they exposed to? Figuring out, you know, the curriculum, figuring out just every part of um, exposure your child is getting. And those variables transcend country, culture, race, class. It doesn't really matter. And that's that that I think is the most important part of comparing systems because we all have so much to learn from one another. Mm, absolutely. Do you think that part of the reason why there's so much choice, because I mean, um, this is honey, I'm homeschooling the kids. So I talk about alternative yeah. education and home education, homeschooling, unschooling. A lot of world schoolers have come on the show too, parents that have or families that have decided to leave there wherever they happen to be living in world school, their kids full time, travel full time with them because they... Um, just for their family, those are the values that work. They want to see, to show the unique differences. I mean, very similar to your family as well, right? Because of, because it's not, and Canada is the same, like the United States per province, education is governed by the province, not mm-hmm. nationally. So it varies depending on what province you live in. Uh, so your, mm-hmm. you know, your studies are going to be and what's fo- the focus is going to be a little bit different. Whereas opposed in Asia, in um, Japan and, and China as well. And I know in Korea, it's a national curriculum. Is that why there's so many, so much choice as well? here in North America for home education, for unschooling, for private schools, for charter schools, for arts academies, for sports academies, um, because of that difference or independence or I'm not even sure. Is that why? It's, I think, more founded on the literally literally founding of our country. It's states' rights versus uh, federal rights. Because when I went to Washington, D.C. last year, I was told repeatedly by people in Congress and in the Senate that there's very little the Department of Education can even do because it's kind of an afterthought. And when you look at our education funding models, only 10% roughly of a school funding comes from the federal education, uh, from comes, I'm sorry, comes from the Department of Education. So when you think about it that way, 
states and then the local taxation district, which is how schools are funded, splits a difference. So it's a 45-45 split typically between the state and the district. And then you have all that variability from there. And so, you know, when you have a child moving from, let's say, Kansas to Texas, they could have a they could be repeating the same content. They could be two years ahead or two years behind. It could be completely different because our systems are our system is so decentralized in the United States. And something that I mention in world class is I call the United States the, the great big Swiss cheese because there are so many holes, unfortunately, or fortunately, which if you have the wherewithal as a family or a community to fill in those gaps, that's wonderful. Well, if you don't have the gaps at all, that's probably the best. But if you have any gaps, then it's incumbent upon the community to fill those gaps in. And in in Asia, because you have such a strict curriculum that is overseen either by the district or the the, the national government, it doesn't it doesn't allow for those gaps. So I guess when it comes to whole schooling and choice, it, it makes sense in the United States that parents have choice and want to exercise choice because everybody's trying to fill in those gaps in any way they can. And I can say that when we moved to Palo Alto, even though my kids were in the local public school in the, in the PAUSD school district, I found there were gaps for sure. And I was supplementing at home. Mm. And, you know, and that's not something that I would necessarily love to do, but because I would love to leave it all up to the school. But I can say, for example, my fifth grade son, when he started at elementary school, he had five classroom teachers because they kept leaving, resigning. and I, you know, that, that leaves a lot of gaps in the, in the, in the curriculum. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And I, I I can't say that Canada is necessarily any different uh, with, you know, teacher burnout and, you know, Mm -hmm. and flow and everything like that as well with teachers coming in and out too. Um, It's unfortunate for that. I, I, I know that we're coming upon our time too, and I want to respect your time because I know you've been uh, with your book release coming out. You've been on a busy, busy schedule as well. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> Very excited. <laughs> Fantastic. So I just, I wanted to actually, I'll, I want, I'll close this up a bit because I feel like, I mean, we could delve into each of these topics for hours and hours pretty well. And I, you know, I want to hear more. So let's let's actually I want to learn a little bit about your family, too, in the transition back to the U.S. And then after that, sure. if we could maybe you can tell a little bit more about your book, World Class, before we finish up here. So how has the transition and move back been? Are they longing to go back to Japan or even to Shanghai? Has it been pretty easy or um, or how about you? Are you are you thinking about returning back to Asia? Oh, that's such a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, let's see, my kids, my older two are now 15 and 13, and they're totally entrenched in the US and the US education system. And I think they have their eyes on going to university here. So they're quite happy with where they are. I always tell them, please spend at least one semester, if not a full year abroad mm. while you're in college in, in Japan or in China so that um, you can really beef up your skills again and to, because they are trilingual, but I believe to be fully, fully trilingual, you have to be able to attend a university in that language. So whether or not they do it, it's up to them, but that is is my hope for them. Interestingly, my youngest, because she went to school in Japan for four years and her Japanese is native, she really identifies with Japan the most. Mm, yeah. And it's really, it's, 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 
fascinating to see because she, I think I said, if we said, okay, let's move to Japan tomorrow, I think she'd be packed up and ready to go within five minutes. And it's not that she doesn't like the US because she's very, very happy here, but it was her first real serious schooling experience that she has memories of. And since we left in 2016, she has been going back every summer. So she just came back actually from having spent almost two months in Tokyo. And she went back to school with her friends because the school year ends closer to the end of July. Yeah. So most of June and July, she did go back to school with her friends. And the kids, like we discussed earlier, the kids have freedom there. You know, so she's 10 years old and she's making plans to see her friends on a Saturday and to meet them at the playground and go to the community center and to have lunch at the, you know, buy like a, a sandwich at the convenience shop and eat it at the park. And I, I think that's a that's a a freedom that doesn't really exist at the same level in the United States that she misses. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. 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 I, I understand that. Yeah. Oh, so you asked me too about the transition back. And for me, it was... It was really important that my children appreciated their U.S. citizenship throughout our travels because it was our U.S. passports that allowed us it, access to where we lived. And we always had a place to come back to that I felt was safe. So when we came back in 2016, I will be the first to admit, you know, we came back to a country that was facing a uh, presidential election and the outcome I think, really through this country. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way for three years. And without getting into too deep of a political conversation, what's been going on has been has been very eye-opening for me and my family. And we've had to have very open, and I, and I guess a nice way of saying it is mature conversations that we never really had to have before. Mm -hmm. um, because my kids are far more sheltered, I felt like, in Japan. Right. That That has been the biggest... I guess awakening or or shock for me. It, yeah, I can I understand that completely. And it's also at the same time uh, I think it's going to be a huge strengthening experience for your family together, the connecting experience and going through that together cuz you know by the sounds of it I I really am only just just read through this conversation it, it seems to me that you have a fairly strong foundational structure within your own home and communication is very very key and important which I think is fantastic and that's what it seems that in your home that is a very important part of it and moving forward I think your kids have a fantastic perspective because even now in I could say it's a tumultuous time in the United States yes. in very many ways I mean I think just the other day I saw the Amnesty International report that they put a travel advisory to the, anyone traveling to the United States. I know for in Canada, oh it's been shown that there's, a you know, a, you know, it's kind of shocking, but because of, you know, the shootings and, and what's going on, right? Um, yeah. But they can come at it with a very different perspective, which will give a very different meaning for them. And um, so I, I think that is, they're pretty lucky in that way, that it's not just the one way and, and that they can see other how other alternatives and options have worked in the world as well. So, yeah, that's my hope. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Well, I think you're doing a good job of it. So I appreciate that. So, world class is coming out August the twentieth. That's right. Next week. That's Tuesday. right. Okay. Yes. Um. So when this airs for the listeners here, this may have already been out. Uh, when you hear this, but can you let us know if we would like to get the book, uh, contact you, learn more about you, where do we go? Yes, I love conversations about anything education related. So 
please go to my website. I'm also on social media on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. I have a Simon & Schuster author page, and I have a YouTube channel with some video teasers and some work that I've done previously. But I really, I I appreciate all engagement on anything that can really help our, our children. So please, please stay in touch and please read my book. I would love any feedback you have on my book. It really, any conversation about that would be welcome. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. So um, teruclavel.com, that's where we can find you. T-E-R-U-C-L-A-V-E-L.com. Yes, Okay. exactly. Thank you. And the book is World Class, A Mother's Journey Halfway Around the Globe in Search of the Best Education for Her Children. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, I'll be back in touch. Thank you, Shrew, for Thank you so, so much. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website, imhomeschooling.com, or email me directly, robin at imhomeschooling.com. Thank you.